Hello and welcome to the Fit for Life podcast with your host, Alan Fitton. In this podcast, I will be covering fitness-related subjects and my experiences to do with nutrition, building muscle and weight loss, to name a few, and how, above all, to keep fit for life. So all of us, me and my other colleagues, including Gabriel Amara, who I played, they captured all of us, threw us in the truck, and I said to the guy, what have we done? All of a sudden, I got a gun on my face. This guy just hit me with the boss of the gun and another slap and said, don't ask question. And these guys, they don't talk. They were all over six foot, the big, big military guy. They mm. were uh, security to this guy. So what happened, the guy who was in the convoy was a general, late general. He also died in Sierra Leone. It's called, uh, he was a chief of staff of the Nigerian army, General Maxwell Kobe. You can Google him up. And I wrote about him in the book. So he was in charge of the war. So he is the most feared general in West Africa at that time. The rebels fear him. Our National Army fear him because he had no mess around. So the president leave every security thing with him. So he thought we were up to no good. So that's why he sent his men to come and capture us. So where did they take us? To the military prison, which is just down the road where I was uh, close to Tembetan, where I was born. So I remember when we got there... And I said, how bad, how much bad luck can I get? Now I've qualified, got a week to go, and here I am being captured, me and Gabriel. But when we got there, what was very, was very even bad at that time, was confusing is, the, one of the soldiers came out, they have all these helmets on their head, and then they have dark glass, so you can't see who these people were. So one of them grabbed me, dragged me out, and then there was a gun behind me, AK-47. This guy put, I could feel the barrel of the gun resting on my back. Yeah. So, and I'm thinking, why are they treating me different? And then on the corner of my eyes, I could see my colleagues who were going into the prison. But for me, the guy was pushing me somewhere else at the back of the prison. He was pushing me with the gun to go. We didn't say anything. Mm. So in my head, I quickly think, ah, he's going to shoot me because I was the one who was clowning with the general, Yeah, you know, so and so I have come to the, uh, you know, to acknowledge that, okay, you know, acceptance that you can be killed. I'm going to be killed. This is it for me. And it was all gone. I told you um, I was really scared. That was the first time I really I was really scared because now I've seen my friend being shot and I've done everything. So I quickly... I mean, some things are like second, but they felt like minutes because everything, like you said, goes in slow motion. Mm. I could think clearly. I could quickly think. I could see my mom. I could see my sisters. And I shut my eyes for a very short time while this guy was pushing me. And I prayed to God and said, God, accept me to heaven. Forgive me for what I've done. Whatever happened, I'm going to miss my mom. And I think what my mom is going to feel if they, you know, if they tell her that I have been killed. Yeah. And maybe she will never see my body again, obviously. They won't they won't take you to your family, they just dump you in some mass grave. And I I also quickly remember the face, the look on my mom's face, the pain she was going through when Alimami was killed. And that made me feel really, really bad. My legs went jelly, everything again, and I felt so drained. And for the first time I actually felt really sorry for myself. But then after that, the last person I thought about was Halimami. Mm. So I think I look into the heavens, this guy is pushing me and I'm trying to slow him down and I'm walking slowly to try and get my thought together to really prepare myself 
for for my last time and I'm looking around and say wow this is the last time I'm going to live I might as well just make the most of this just slow things down and I thought about Halimami and then I smile I find myself smiling not because I wanted to smile for whatever reason I just felt joyful again the relief of the fear of death at that minute when I thought about Halimami completely left my soul it's almost like I was soulless mm. You know, because you've accept that you're going to die. There's nothing else. Nobody can save you in this situation. Yeah. And so I was there thinking to myself, yes, how proud Alimami will be to see him in heaven. I said, I can't wait yeah. to meet him. That's that's the way my heads are thinking. So that's got me not too scared anymore. And then all of a sudden, I had uh, somebody call my name. Uh, the guy was whispering. He said, uh, PJ. So, you know, when this kind of thing happened, like I said, everything was in slow motion. I thought, am I dreaming? Is this, what is going on with me? I'm, <laughs> pretty, I'm pretty sure in my head I'm not going mentally disturbed here. <laughs> you know, so I heard the person said, PJ. And then I didn't respond. And I stopped. You know, I'm looking back, but the gun was still behind me. And this time we're walking slowly towards the back of the military prison. Mm. And, then, and then he shouted again. He said, PJ. It's me, Julius. So when he said Julius, and I, I remember who Julius was. You know, Julius was a Nigerian soldier. When they brought them in after they overthrew the military and the rebels, mm. so they brought them as security, military security. They were like in the MP military police, they called them, and right. special security force. So Julius walked to the tennis court introduce himself because that's what the good soldiers do mm -hmm. to get information you have to be friends with the locals right i see so he came and we introduced ourselves and i introduced myself for whatever reason this guy just loved me right. he just liked me we liked each other because he does taekwondo i does martial arts so and then we started training after work he will come he was a huge guy very muscular because they got to be like that to be in that force and and we'll do martial arts and then he said oh i love tennis and we start doing tennis and then in the rainy season we start doing table tennis inside the the club yeah so he become like my brother so right. because of him the beating stopped from the soldiers they weren't beating us anymore and he was always there to make sure that we are safe oh. so yeah. thankfully he was one of the guys they sent to arrest us so that's why he asked his colleague to pull me aside so that they can let me go Wow. So Julius said to me, he said, PJ, I said, I never want to see you again. I'm sorry. This is really bad. You have to go. The yeah. boss man is not happy. Uh, unfortunately for my other uh, colleagues, they spent 21 days in a military prison with so much, um, you know, punishment. And then they went through so much struggle, hunger, starvation. Um, but I find myself again very lucky because Julius, as a friend, was there, you know, to help me out. So and then I escaped. So that happened on the 13th of December, which was a Sunday, so a week before I left. So, but anyway, and then a um, few days after that, uh, the Saturday, which was the 19th of uh, December 1998, I remember going to the National Stadium and collect my uh, allowances, which was over 250 US dollar, wow. and also my national tracksuits. So, and then uh, on the way, I decided to pass to my dad and see him to say goodbye that I was going to, you know, play tennis. So when I got there to his house, my dad was lying, you know, and um, as usual, uh, when he's not working. So I went in and um, we sat down talking and I said to my dad, you know, dad, I'm going to Ghana tomorrow. 
And uh, you would have thought that I told my dad I've just landed from the moon because the, <laughs> the, yeah. the shock and the look on his face and um, like, uh, why are you going to Ghana? I said, well, dad, I'm going to play tennis. And he was confused. So, but what I did was um, I had a $50 note, which I've saved for my dad. So I took the $50 note and I opened his hand and I put the $50 note on his hand. And I can tell you for the first time when I told my dad uh, how much the $50 was in our currency. And my dad, first and the last time, he actually gave me a hug. Wow. And um, he thanked me very much and then he prayed for me. And uh, like I always said, I was very certain that my dad wasn't going to cut my fingers for playing the rich white man <laughs> spot. <laughs> so it must have been pretty humbling as well from obviously hearing the past from what from his said to you, um, saying <clears throat> that he didn't want to wouldn't want you to follow that as a career path because yeah. you didn't think it amount to anything. Yeah. But then from your success, you've gone, you know, yeah. look what I've done, look what I've achieved, you know. Yeah. I think what my dad Tread did for me is when he told me he would cut my fingers if I touch tennis uh, is that I become very defiant and tennis is a very defiant sport. It doesn't matter what your opponent throws at you, you got to be mentally because unlike football and other sport or team sport where you can talk to each other, they can give you instruction, your coach can be on the side shouting information on what to do. Yeah. In tennis, uh, coaches are not allowed to talk to you unless if you're playing in the Davis Cup. So you've got to be able to talk to yourself and convince yourself, motivate yourself and push yourself even when the odds are against you. Mm. So when my dad said that to me, I said, I want to prove to my dad that tennis is not just for a rich white man. And also the, I knew if I start making money out of it, I will help my dad yeah. because he was, he was poor. So that 50 US dollar was more than six months of his salary. Wow. So he was really excited and I was quite happy. In fact, those were some of my happiest memories to see that my dad come to terms that uh, I love tennis and he could just give me the moral support, not that I wanted him to but you know get a racket for me which of course he didn't have the money mm -hmm. but just wanted him to understand this is what i want to do and like i said before to you alan is uh, to be fair to my dad he didn't want me you know to end up you know uh, like him you know no. working a month all this hard work and then ending up with uh, less than 10 quid a month yeah understand. you know so yeah. he wanted me to be a doctor to went to the best for you didn't he yeah yeah, yeah. so that was that was the happy memory with me and my dad and then um so the following day on the 20th of uh, you know uh, december 1998 you know i found myself and my colleague and my coach uh, traveling crossing the atlantic ocean you know to the airport which is called the lunge airport and then in freetown so i was super excited for the first time for me to start traveling in a plane because as a child as well um uh, the reason why sierra leone is also called uh, sierra leone uh it was a french uh, portuguese guy uh, pedro de Sintra, who gave the modern name to sierra leone which was sierra de Leoa. so when he landed in freetown and uh, in the ship, the, the mountains, they actually shaped like a lion. You can see the tail, the body, and the head. Oh, right. So that's why he, he named the country, uh, a modern name, Sierra Leone, so which means right. the Lion Mountain. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I can remember um, the airport is way, you know, uh, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean there. So me growing up in the mountain, every time I would look at the plane as a kid, you know, the landing, the taking off, landing, and you keep thinking... I can't wait for the day I will be in one of these, you know, yeah. to travel. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so the 20th of December, I find myself those early child dream when we're up the mountain at night, you see those flight landing and you know now, yeah, this is reality and all the hard work and the pain, the struggle, the war, 
you know, all these sort of things and losing Alimami as well, yeah, you know, and now it's paid off. And I could, I could remember it like it happened yesterday, you know, getting into that airport. And in my book, I mentioned as well, when we got to the airport, there was a trouble because we got there on the 20th of December, all the flights have been canceled. Oh, stop it. Yeah, so including our flight as well. So luckily there was another uh, Air Ivory Coast uh, flight, Côte d'Ivoire, Right. and um, Ivory Coast so there a plane turned up but my coach was so well known at the airport and he knows all the top guys there so he went and told them say look I got two kids here and we're going for the international tournament to represent the country if we don't get in the next flight we're going to miss that and Sierra Leone is going to be in trouble so what they did was I think it was a five or six seat left in the flight so they managed to get three of us and Amazing. and so they changed uh, our ticket really quick because the manager at the airport knew us and knew that we were going to play for Sierra Leone so that was another obstacle we bumped into at the airport but finally I find myself you know climbing into the flight for the first time what a relief and then the plane took off you know for the first time I was leaving my country to go international tournament so yeah, it worked out very well, and uh, we got to Ghana, we slept in Accra. For the first time, I described it, I'm sleeping in a county where I couldn't hear a bomb sound, a gunshot, and, you know, it was almost like a dream, yeah. you know, you, you're somewhere else. But then I played my first tournament in Ghana, um, which started on the 27th of December, because uh, that was after Boxing Day. Because Christmas Day, they did a big party for us. So all the country kids, the kids from Great Britain, kids from Austria, Egypt, everywhere in Africa, and um, yeah, kids from Israel as well. Because mm. I can remember I played against an Israeli kid in the second and third leg. And so, yeah, it was good to see all the other African kids, the standard of tennis. And luckily for me, my first match I played, I won 6-love, six 6-love. Six I beat uh, a kid from Niger. And um, and then I went my second round. I had to play the number three seed, who was a kid from uh, Mali called Tamba Samasa, who was a really good player. Right. And he had a huge serve, like myself. But the experience was really good in Ghana. So, you know, and we left, finished Ghana. We went to Togo, which is another country. And um, uh, we played in Togo. Same thing. Whilst we were there, something happened because uh, Freetown was attacked again. Mm. So, and, and, and I remember playing against the Israeli kid and I was losing, but looking at my coach to see what help he could give me. And he was so glued to his radio, he wouldn't even move. And then when I changed over, came towards him and coach, you okay? And he said to me, I think everyone in the city has died because, uh, on the news, they said Freetown has been attacked and there's over 10,000 people being killed in a few days. And so he couldn't get through to his family. So we knew it was bad because uh, the rebels and the national army, they were launching an attack again to take over the country. So we went uh, to Togo. Well, we couldn't finish very well because the tournament just become, you know, pointless at that time because I, my parents didn't have phone, so I didn't know what was happening. But then we end up uh, continue because our coach called a meeting. Do you guys want to play? So well, we're here. We can't go back to Sierra Leone because they've shut the country down. So we might as well just use this opportunity to keep playing. So we end up, the third leg was in Nigeria. Right. And so we went to Nigeria, we played, uh, won some couple of games, but again, the focus level was difficult. But what I could remember, in fact, in Togo was every television you turn was dominated by the Sierra Leone news, the rebel war. And because every other nation and kids knew we are from Sierra Leone, I could remember in Togo where... 
when um, January 6, 1999, is when they attack uh, Freetown. The, one of the worst attacks when they kill all those, you know, thousands of people. Mm. And a lot of the other kids from different county they came around us, they formed a circle and, you know, oh. all they were all saying, no, don't worry, you guys going to be okay. And, you know, people share our emotions. And it was... It was really, it was really sad, but really good to see the bond of the human spirit as well. Like people don't even have to say a lot; they just yeah. come around and give us a hug, and you know, show that they're, they're there for us. So I thought that was really good, and that's why, in fact, I so embraced tennis yeah. in such a way because tennis did a lot of good for me. Like you know, what happened with Julius and me being able to make the first two hundred and fifty dollars plus you know, ever somebody in my family to earn that kind of money and able to use $150, you know, which I gave to my mom for six months feeding. And then I gave my dad $50 and then I kept some for myself to travel and I was able to pay my own school fee and stuff. So uh, it was really good. But then when we finished in Nigeria, the tournaments, we couldn't go back to Sierra Leone. So we ended up becoming a refugee in Ghana. So we were there. <laughs> yeah. Wow. yeah, we were in Ghana for... About eight weeks or so. Yeah. And um, so we didn't get back to Sierra Leone until March after my birthday. And so we have to fly to Guinea, Conakry from Ghana. We got a flight there and then one night we slept. And then my colleague, my teammate, uh, he stayed in Guinea because his dad was working for the government. So they've managed to get over to Guinea and they had a house there. So for me, I didn't have that. My family was back in Sierra Leone. So... My coach wanted to go see his family and I would have preferred to stay in Guinea, but um, he wanted I got to be home. Too, mm. So you got to hand over me back to my family and stuff. And anyway, so we went back, me and him, we managed to get us in a, one of those um, cargo little plane with nice. the propeller. Yeah. So I can remember sitting in this little thing and <laughs> I could barely see where my coach was because there was a load in between on the aisle and everywhere. And when that thing took off, I never even knew we were going to get in the air because it was so noisy and so really? scary. And um, 25 minutes later, we flew from Guinea, Conakry, which is the capital city, Conakry, and to Freetown. And I remember landing. All you can see is smoke in the city, yeah. houses still on fire and uh, smoke. And only military guys and the airport, there was nobody there. It was completely empty. So me and my coach... And uh, we just walked through. Nobody even checked us. The few people who were there, you can see the grief and uh, hunger and starvation. And, you know, what happened within those attacks in Freetown was really bad. And we couldn't even get any other thing. So they ordered a helicopter for us. Because you can either go by the ferry or local boat or take the helicopter, which is a 12 minutes, which is the worst flight. I hit them helicopters. <laughs> okay. And, um, well, it was the only means. And so one of the things my coach did was, uh, uh, so me and him in this helicopter, with, well, with two other guys, the pilot flying the helicopter with his co-pilot or whatever. And I remember he asked them if they can just uh, pass towards the city because they usually fly to the ocean and then into the a place, which is the Abadin Beach. That's where they will land. And then we get a car from there. So the pilot did went to the middle of the city and all you can see is just all the main, you know, big government building in fire. Nobody on the streets. Everybody was home. And yeah, so we, we landed and uh, coach said goodbye to me. We took two different taxis because he was going to like uh, towards the center of the city. I was going towards the coast. 
to the mountain and so we were both going two different directions yeah and i remember sitting in the taxi trying to this driver was trying to have conversation with me and i could even speak from what i could see and you could still see uh, another sad thing is vultures are everywhere because the reason why we have so much vulture is people who have been explored their body parts is everywhere so the vultures they come to pick this up and um they had military checkpoints everywhere. Nigerian soldiers were everywhere. And so thankfully for me, because I had my, still had my tracksuit on and my passport, you can see. In fact, that I, did, I didn't even have passport that first trip. I had a, something called a emergency travel certificates. Right. It's like a paper kind of documents where you, but the guys can see I've just come from Nigeria. So they just wave me past. I say, I've just come from tennis. And there was a checkpoint every 100, 200 meters because then the rebels were still threatening to, to come back and attack the city. So, and um, I, didn't, I still didn't know whether my parents, siblings, whether yeah. anyone was alive because there was no communication between me and them. But when I yeah. took the taxi all the way to Hill Station, all you can see on the road is vultures, ammo shells, the shells from the bullets and uh, blasts of bullets and then buildings that i'm familiar with has been burnt down or Christ. bomb and so, so you're automatically thinking the worst case scenario yeah. aren't yeah. you because i mean just I, I was really thinking the worst because it's like even the people on the road that i saw close to my area that i identify you could see how people have lost weight you know those three months uh, between december january no january was the attack and then february march there was no food. Mm. The whole country, every of the foreign people have left, you know. So we were just abandoned, you know, in Sierra Leone. And I remember getting to a station, coming off the car, saw my sister, saw my coach, everybody. I, I, in fact, I was crying and laughing at the same time because my sisters, they all got big head, lost weight. You can count everybody's bone, yeah. you know, and yeah. It, yeah, there was no food. It was really bad, the situation in Sierra Leone. So thankfully, I had some money with me because I did got some money uh, from a guy in Nigeria. And then we got some money from the sport director who passed away a few years ago. And he looked after us when we were there. He paid for everything. We got three meal a day. We got training program. And then uh, we also got a hotel sometimes. And they will bring us back to the sport college. So the Ghanaians really took very good care of us. And then whilst I was in Ghana and uh, the national coach met me one evening and he said, you know, you guys are playing good tennis. I went to university in Sierra Leone. And how do you guys manage to play tennis with all the trouble? I said, well, you know, when it, they start fighting, we stop. When they stop, we get on with our lives. And then he said, look, if you ever consider to come here and continue your tennis and education, count on me. I will look after you. So that's, oh. yeah. So when I went yeah. back to Sierra Leone, I noticed things were really bad. And so I decided uh, after helping my family to get some food and spend all the money that I had, you know, so I decided, you know, I need to leave. And my coach said to me, you, it's better you leave, go to Ghana, find your way there, and then those people will help you. So, yeah. and the guy, they, they gave me a few years of scholarship. That's how I ended up back in Ghana right. and training. And, you know, so I'm here I am. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. I mean, absolutely incredible. I mean, I, mean, I, I think you know, listeners can't comprehend you, know, not only 
being away from your country to obviously to play your sport, but then having no method of contact at all yeah. to check that your loved ones are okay or, or anything like that it must have been. Yes, uh, it, it, it was very difficult because like I said, I love my mom and I love mm. my siblings and my dad. And when you don't have, my dad was an electrician who uh, his main job was fixing telephone and stuff like that, but he never had one in his life because we never had electricity in the house where, yeah. when I lived with him. So, and not knowing where your family is, and then when you look at the TV, all you see is people being killed, yeah. you see, and then you can, oh, that's my area, oh, that's where my dad live, or that's where my auntie live, and this is the stadium. In fact, half of the population in the city went to the stadium, that's where they were seeking refuge. And then you, you see thousands and thousands of people kids crying and then how they're scared of the missile flying and exploding and then you can see your own city where you grow up just turning upside down through destruction i think for me that was some of the worst you know memory i had when i was abroad you know so even though i had the opportunity to go compete in tennis at the same time i was going through emotional torturing and you know i, I said to me i'd rather be home with my parents and siblings and uh, knowing what is happening, if we all have to die, we die there. I don't want to be in Ghana or somewhere, yeah. you know, whilst they are struggling. So it was that kind of feeling. But when I went back home and then coach said, we'll be okay here. My mom and sisters, they were quite happy for me to leave. And I make sure that they got enough food. And so all the allowance and money that I got was good enough to buy food and whatever we can find yeah. and stuff like that. So it, it was, uh, in the end, it was quite good. But again, thanks to tennis and thanks to my resilience and determination. Yeah. It you know. saved your life. Yeah, it did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Main quote of the book. So, so you had your period in Ghana there. So I'm guessing you continued to compete yes about that and then obviously eventually you turn into being a coach yourself do you want to do it yeah so i spent uh, some time in ghana i went back um whilst we were there as a refugee in fact not as a refugee the first week we went there i met with uh, a guy called coach noah okay yeah so in ghana i uh, i met coach noah and he realized that i love bread and they have very good big bread in in uh, in ghana so i started um uh, he started bringing me bread and that's how we become friends. I was probably very likable in the camp because I was very high energetic and coach said he realized that I was very noisy because <laughs> <laughs> I was enjoying myself yeah, and, yeah. and stuff like that. And so it was really good. So when I went back, I struggled to get back to Ghana. In fact, uh, it should have taken me about an hour in a flight, but I didn't have the money and things. So I have to go by road and through in that Traveling by road, I nearly get killed in Liberia uh, because Charles Stiller was uh, still the president and he didn't like Sierra Leoneans uh, going to Liberia because there was a tension between Liberia and Sierra Leone because the war started in Liberia and stuff like that. Right. So as we know, Charles Stiller uh, was a, you know, he was a very, very, you know, tough guy who didn't take any mess from anyone. And he was a rebel leader in Liberia and then become the, the president. So, and yeah, but um, I managed to survive that, spend some time in Liberia. And um, the first time when I went uh, for the first tournament, I also met uh, a Liberian kid called Aaron Kennedy, who is now in America. And me and him become such a good friend. And so when I went, I spent some time with him in Morovia. We trained and then I got some money. So I ended up in Ghana 
And then back again to the guy uh, who said um, if I needed to come there for school and tennis, I should uh, consider that. So I went to Accra, spent some time with him. And he brought me back to the Winneba where we had the tournament. So I met again with Coach Noah. And then we went back to Accra at his. And he said to me, would you want to stay here in Accra in the city with me? Or would you want to prefer to stay in Winneba where you did the tournament in the sports college there and train there? So I said, I want to go to the sports college because mm. the place is quiet. It's a university and I can study there. And then plus you got eight tennis courts just outside your room. Wow. And you got a wall which is like 15, 20 foot high. And yeah. then I like Kuchino as well. The city life was too busy and, uh, you know, I didn't want to live in the middle of the city. So and then, yeah, so they arranged it and they dropped me to Coach Noah and it become like my dad, my mentor, my coach, my guru, my superhero. Wow. And uh, he was a lecturer. So I was studying at the same time and then playing uh, tennis. I met a lot of great uh, Ghanaian athletes. Michael Essen, the former player for Chelsea, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. was there and wow. um, he was training there. Right. But we didn't know at that time he's going to be what he ended up no, becoming. No, no. All the heavyweight boxers for Ghana were there. And uh, that year, the women team that went to the World Cup, they were there. They called them the Black Queen. So I was there with all of them. In fact, the goalkeeper at that time, we spent a lot of time talking about Sierra Leone. And then the Ghanaian goalkeeper, his name was Samia Jay. So he got the same name as me. And he, uh, we become such a good friend. He was next door to me. So every evening we would sit and talk. He was a very quiet guy. I was the only one. In fact, people used to say, how come... He is the only one that he wants to talk to because this guy, once he finished practice, he go to his room. He's very quiet. Right. And then I saw him in the World Cup with Ghana and Tim. I said, oh, yeah, that's my friend. And, you know, so I met a lot of great at, uh, athletes in, in that place. Boxers, we all used to have great time at night. And after some years, and um, so I went back to visit in Sierra Leone and then came back to Ghana. And then I met with the Gambian tennis president. So what happened is uh, in 2000, in the year 2000, I finished my own ITF tournament. So I was 18. Mm -hmm. After I played again, I continued competing in Ghana, Togo, and Nigeria within this side. Whilst I was training in Ghana and studying. So and then the, in 2000, the junior under 14 team came from Gambia. So they had the under 14 tournament. So and then coach said, oh, do you want to help with this? I said, I can help. So I started helping. So these uh, two G uh, Gambian players, they came and I saw them on the court, the practice on the, on the first day, second day. And then I went over and said, where is your coach? Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, we didn't come with a coach. And um, because our coach has gone for conference in South Africa. And, um, but uh, we had the tennis president with us. So he's in the room sleeping. Yeah. So anyway... And they said, uh, so I said, okay, well, I can train with you guys if you want to. So, and then I started training them. You know, I was hitting with them, helping them what to do. And they were so super excited. So they went to tell the tennis president and say, oh, we've met these guys from Sierra Leone. He's been helping. So and I didn't see the tennis president until about four or five days later. He was, yeah. a very, he was an old guy and um, he's not a coach, but he was just there because somebody needed to be with the kids. So anyway, and um, by the time the, the tournament finished, those kids become like I was their coach. I was their bigger, your older brother. Right, okay. So every morning, they find me. They knock on my <laughs> door. <laughs> Afternoon, evening, I was with them. And then the tennis president uh, left me a letter and he said, look, 
Thank you so much for helping us. And these kids have done really well. You're very good with them. A few times he actually came and watched me training with them. And he said, would you consider coming to the Gambia to, uh, to help us when you're not competing? Mm. So I said, I will see about it. When, if I have time, I will come over. I said, yeah, two, three months. I'm sure you will do good with the players there. They will like you and will give you a place to stay. And so that was it. And I went back to Sierra Leone in 2000, end of 2000. And things were a bit tough for me in Ghana. So I decided, okay, I will give this guy a ring and see if I can go to Gambia and do some stuff, uh, get some money, and then play some futures. Now, the futures, you have the ATP uh, top level. Mm-hmm. And then you have challenges and then you have the futures. So the futures is where you start playing to get your world ranking in the men's tennis in the senior division. Okay. And then, so they are really tough. Their futures are really tough because that's a professional level. And so Senegal hosts uh, some of the first, you know, future tournaments. So I said, well, Gambia is in Senegal, so it would be good for me to be there. If I got some money, I will just go over to Senegal and then start competing in the futures. So that's what I did. And uh, again, I struggled to get to Gambia. I even went to prison. And really? um, that is in the book because I went to Gambia after traveling by road and lose my money and all kinds of stuff. And I was struggling because the, I didn't have enough money to fly because flying in Africa is more expensive than sometimes flying. Let's say if I was to fly to Sierra Leone, mm. maybe it would cost me six, seven hundred pounds. Sometimes just to fly between Sierra Leone and another county in Africa, which is like 45-minute fly, will cost you like $1,000. Yeah, so it's one of those bizarre things because yeah. there aren't many flights and this company, they take so much advantage and it's only the rich people that really travel. So, And so this kind of stuff, so I didn't have that kind of money, decided to go by road and then by road again, I struggled, got to Gambia and the border was open so i took a taxi and they took me straight to the second city a place called basse b-a-s-s-e and um, so when i went to basse i went to the immigration and said to the guy where can i stamp my passport because i'm here i got an invitation to come and do tennis with the gambia tennis association so the immigration officer said to me how did you get to gambia i said what do you mean how did i get to gambia i get here by car yeah. I took a taxi from this place in Senegal and they asked me to come here. They said, well, how did you cross the border? I said, I don't know where the border is, sir. Uh, that's why I'm here in the immigration. So pick, pick my bag up, pick my passport, stamp it, refuse, and then they took me to jail. Wow. And the guy said, well, you've entered Gambia illegally. And then I said to the guy, well, I'm a West African citizen. Because yeah. in West Africa, we have a free border, right? And he said, my friend... You're going to be there. So Saturday night, they put me in prison. Sunday morning, they put me in a van and my bag, give me my passport, refuse, and they deport me to Senegal. So while I was in Senegal, I stayed there for a week with a Sierra Leonean guy. And I said, look, I need to go. But the problem I had at that time is contacting the tennis president. Even though I have a letter, the guys didn't believe the letter. They thought I forged it because they took the number on the letter. They were calling the tennis president. But unfortunately for me, the tennis president has gone to South Africa on a meeting. So he lives on his own in his house. And you know those days, it's only house phone. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So the whole day, the guys have been ringing the phone and he's not ringing the immigration officer. I say, hey, look, even give us a fake phone. Nobody answered the phone. And Gambian people don't behave like this. So anyway, so they threw me out and I was ringing, ringing. I didn't know he's gone uh, on this. He didn't know where I was because they sent a letter for me say, I'll yeah. be there. I'm coming by road and stuff like this. So anyway, 
And then the, the guy who was a Sierra Leonean who lives in Senegal, he was doing business. He looked after me. I stayed in his house because I didn't have money. So one day, a week after, I said, okay, I'll put you in a car here. Go back to the refugee camp mm-hmm. in Basse. Register as a refugee, and then they will help you out until you get in contact with the tennis president. So that's what I did. I walked for 12 hours in the desert. Wow. 12 hours by foot. And then I got to the, the, the refugee camp. And um, so, yeah, so the guy, they took me. I become a refugee. And then three days later, they gave me somebody and said, okay, you go to the immigration. We're going to register you as a refugee and then get your papers. And then um, we can sort your problem out. Took me to the immigration. The same guy who deported me was there. And when he saw me, he said, you come back to the Gambia? I said, how dare you? He said, I'm going to put you in jail. I'm going to take you to court and you're going to spend time in prison. I thought this guy was joking. The guy who they sent me with, he talked and said, no, the, the guy said, please don't talk to me. And then they threw me in prison. I was there for a few weeks. Wow. So the reason uh, why I was in prison, this is a, it's a small well, cell where it was uh, more than 12 of us. You can't sleep because there's no space. You can't lie down. You can't stand up because the ceiling was low. And everything you did in the corner there, there's a corner where you do your wee-wee, it's stung. There's so much mosquito and you got one meal a day if you're lucky. And I didn't know anybody in that, no, you know, city. You, yeah, no, no. you know, so here I am and thinking to myself, oh my God, would you guys just try and find a tennis president for me? Because I'm sick and tired with this. And I have my passport at that time. They've seen where I travel. I got all the letters. I got photographed to show them. Say, look, this is me. I play tennis for Sierra Leone. I'm only coming to actually help your Gambian tennis players because they asked me to. They wouldn't want to know. The the guy didn't even know that they play tennis in the Gambia. In fact, he thought I was making a joke. Right. (laughs) And uh, yeah. So anyway, so I spent a few weeks and then uh, we were so hungry at one time. So the guys who they took me there, they went and complained to the UN. So the UN has to come and they see our condition. So they told them immediately they have to release us on the human rights kind of stuff. And so we were released. And then... um, yeah, so I stayed in Basse until finally we got hold of the tennis president. When we told him what happened, and he's a lawyer, he was ready to go wild. Right. And he was ready to go really wild. So fortunately for me, after four weeks, and um, there was a minister of interior actually was coming to that city from Gambia. So the tennis president asked him to get me. And when he came and they introduced me to him, and he looked at my condition. He went to the immigration and he was, all I could hear is arguing, really? going how he's going to deal with all these people in the immigration to put somebody like myself. It's a shame to the Gambia. It's a shame to the people. How can you look at him? He's an innocent kid. He's coming to help us. So it turned out really good. And I made some good friends around as well. So yeah. out of that struggle, I find myself that day uh, i was in a like a six seven convoy vehicle with this minister and they brought me all the way to the city and you know so and yeah so a few years in 2001 i lived in the gambia training competing training competing so i never left the gambia until i met my kid's mom in 2001 so you know we fall in love for each other whilst i was there helping and competing and then uh, we end up getting married in 2000 and 
Right. So we got married, and yeah. then uh, in 2004, I got a visa, my first visa to come to England. And um, that was in May 2004, I, May 25th, I first arrived in the London uh, Gatwick. And so, yeah, so I came and we, I stayed in Southport after a week in London, came to Southport. But in fact, my first impression of Southport, it was so dull. <laughs> really? I think to myself, <laughs> there is no way. I'm going to live here. What type of year was this? When you, when it you was came? in May. It was in May. Right? And I was absolutely freezing cold to start <laughs> off with. So I can remember asking my kid's mom, uh, when is the summer? He said, well, this is the summer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a slap in the face, isn't it? <laughs> if this is your summer, I really don't want to see what your winter is yeah, like. Yeah. And, um, and, but, you know, so after, and then in September... I was like, I couldn't wait to get back to Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Take me back. <laughs> Take me back. I left. And then I went back and she said, well, we were married. We, you got to come back to, you know, to England because uh, she has been over 25 times to see me during our, you know, uh, relationship. So I decided, well, yeah, I got to come back. So I came back in November <laughs> 2004 and they gave me two years visa when I went. And, um, and you know, so... I found myself in Southport 2005. My twin daughters were born in Omskeg. So they're 17 now. Last week they turned 17. Goodness yeah. me, we're getting old. <laughs> so uh, ever since uh, I've, I've been in Southport, I've loved Southport. I got used to it. And um, as they always say, the rest is history. And then uh, I competed until 2007 when I played the All-African game for Sierra Leone and in Algeria, which is in North Africa. So there I, uh, I was uh, selected to be the flag bearer for my country. That's incredible. Yeah. And I could remember going to the stadium. There was over 60,000 people, 6,000 athletes, officials. And, yeah. uh, you know, the open ceremony was like the Olympics. It was really massive because this time Africa has really picked up with all these sporting events. And there was 26 discipline athletes from all over the, the continent, marathon runners, swimmers, taekwondo, football, tennis, you name it. So, and I was choosing to be the flag bearer for my country. Okay. And, you know, I could remember going through the tunnel and it was me and my tennis president because the Sierra Leone contingent, they were late to come. But when we, when they announced, uh, you know, Sierra Leone, it was so well organized. I'm talking about the open ceremony itself. And we got into the stadium and I'm holding on to my county flag and I'm looking around the stadium and I'm thinking to myself, wow, like how did I end up here? Yeah. You know, with the emotions, I look into the sky and I was thinking about Alimami, how grateful and appreciative and happy he will be in heaven. So, so that, was, that was really good, great memories and I got a few photos of that. And then after 2007... You know, tennis is expensive. I've trained a lot in England here. I was training with a former British player called Ken Skopsky. Mm -hmm. And he just retired, in fact, uh, this year. He retired in Wimbledon. He's now coaching here in Liverpool. He achieved so much. His brother, Neil Skopsky, is the world number one now in doubles. And, you know, mm -hmm. so I grew up with these guys. And, and so I decided, well, I'm going to become a coach. So in 2006, actually, I got my first coaching qualification with the PTA, which is the Professional Tennis Registry. And then I become an LTA coach, actually, in 2009. And I started working as a coach. And that same year, 2009, I started traveling internationally with a British player called Alex Sendigea, who was also from Liverpool. Great player, mm -hmm. top 100 junior. 
and played all the Grand Slam Junior, went to America in college, and he still plays, still competing today. And mm. uh, yeah, so I've met, you know, my life, I've gone on to achieve so many great things in tennis. Yeah. I've hit with ATP players, you know, WTA players like Kaya Kanepi from uh, Estonia. She's been twice quarterfinalist at Wimbledon. In fact, she's been quarterfinal in all the Grand Slam, top 15 in the world. She's wow. a uh, good friend of mine. Yeah. And I've also uh, hit with Andrew Rublev, who is currently number six. He's a friend of mine we met at the Liverpool International. And Michael Russell from America. And um, Alexander Kandansu from, uh, uh, from Romania. She's a WTA player. Norwegian number one, Melanie Stoke. So, so many good players I've hit with and been friends with. The, in the legend side, I met with Virginia Wade. And uh, we become friends, great Virginia Wade. So she's a good friend of mine. And when she comes to the Liverpool, and she was one of the people actually who was motivating me to write my story. Because I remember training with Virginia in Liverpool. And we finished training. We, both me and her, we sat on the tennis court. You know, we're talking about life. And I could remember myself say, wow. As a kid growing up in Sierra Leone, the rich people used to bring tennis magazine, which was like a year old. And I used to read about Virginia and all these people. And here I am, you know, sat in in, in all city, my favorite city, Liverpool, sat with uh, one of the legends of our sport, yeah. you know, talking and said, this is surreal. And then I met Manso Barami. We, for a few years, were there. We worked together at the Liverpool International Wise is there. And me and him were in Norway together as well. Wow. And... Um, and then last year I was with Pat Cash, who's a friend of mine. In fact, we message each other every two weeks or so. And and then um, Pat Cash is working with a lady who was the Chinese number one, Wan Kwan. Right. So uh, she also I've known her for a few years because she was working with a former eight times Grand Slam champion, uh, late Peter McNamara from Australia. So Peter McNamara was a friend of mine as well. So that's how I met uh, Wan Kwan. And yeah. uh, now Pat Cash is coaching, coaching her. So we met when I brought Elijah from America, the kid who I travel with. So yeah, so life has been good. So yeah, so currently I'm working with a player called Elijah Poriski. Uh, he's made his first uh, few ATP, first ATP points. So, he, you know, he's a great kid. We've been working together for six years. We've traveled all over the world, South America, Canada, every, so many states in the U.S. and all over Europe. Eastern Europe, you know, Europe, France, Germany, wherever. And this year he was here with me to compete at the Liverpool International. So I met great legend and tennis has taken me all over the world. I've been to over 90 counties worldwide. It's incredible. You know, and I'm telling my stories. And also I run a foundation called, uh, used to be called uh, Max and Sam Tennis Foundation. And then uh, Max, by the way, is the son of uh, former Liverpool skipper Phil Thompson. So we formed a foundation together many years ago in 2008. And then um, I changed the name to Samjalo Sport Foundation, but now we've changed it to Anglo-African Sports Education Trust, and which we help children in many counties in Africa, about 15 counties in education, and to get into tennis, stay positive, and I do a lot of motivational speaking. And last year I also uh, went to 10 different counties by road, and then I, I did 10,000 miles, which was crazy, wow. for over six weeks. Yeah. And um, did tennis, motivational speaking, and um, all kinds of stuff we did to help the children and community to stay away from trouble, knife crime, gun crime, drugs, and to take education seriously. 
And then in 2020, I won the prestigious, I was one of the winners of the prestigious BBC award, which is an award they usually give to three people every year. And, and um, so, you know, so I was uh, contacted by BBC because I did a documentary with BBC World Service Radio and the Liverpool Echo newspaper picked my story up. And then when my book was launched in 2019, so that helped me to be uh, nominated for the award and then uh, end up being one of the winners, you know, which is a global, it's a very big award. Yeah. And uh, BBC did short documentary of us, you know, all the winners and stuff like that. And then uh, this year, with another uh, charity that I volunteer with, uh, which is run by Robin Baines, who's an MBE. Uh, Robin Bain is like my father figure here, my everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so this year we won also the prestigious Queen's Voluntary Service Award, uh, which is like the MBE for charity. So to be, to be part of these things and so many other stuff has happened, you know, launching my book and being part of the BBC Sunday Morning Live has done a documentary for me. Uh, I was on the BBC Saturday Live show with Faye Ripley, the lady in the... Uh, what did they call the program and cold feet oh yeah and tv series and then dr zoe williams uh she was uh, uh she was known as amazon in the gladiator second series she's right. a very fit lady yeah, yeah. so uh yeah. and then with another very good lady old lady oh, she's uh she's called christabel carlisle right so she was known as the lady in the mini she was doing racing with with men you know so right. uh, back in the days so I've been around some good people and, um, you know, like I said, and then my autobiography, How Tennis Saved My Life, Play Tennis Not War was released in 2019. And now this year I've got my new book, which is out, uh, titled Can't Break the African Spirit, and uh, which will be launched in January 2023, but people can pre-order that in Amazon and stuff. So. A lot has happened and my kids are growing, I'm keeping healthy, I'm doing my foundation work, my tennis, traveling around the world, you know, and now I've been a TED speaker, 2019. I've been two times TED speaker and one during the lockdown uh, for university in uh, Tunisia and um, now I'm doing public speaking all over the place. So here I am. Yeah, yeah, it's... um one hell of a journey. Yes, <laughs> it's amazing, yes. obviously, from where you've come from to where you are now. You've achieved some amazing greatness. Yeah, and then you know, the sport tennis has, has, has truly impacted you and let you see the world. And yeah. it's just amazing now that you know you, you play professional sport. You now coach other people. Now you inspire other people through your own journey. And yes. it's, it's truly empowering. And you know, the things you achieve in the awards, the things you, you know, you've done absolutely incredible, haven't you? You know, it's yeah, it it, it, it it's truly you know inspiring you know, for me for anyone. Yeah. Um, it's brilliant. So um, we'll ask you a, a few cheeky questions now. Yep. Um, put you a little bit on the spot. Yeah. Um, so looking back after everything that we've just gone through here and what you've been through, um, if there's one thing that you had the power to change in your whole life, yeah. what would it be and why? Uh, hate. 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 Yeah. When people hate each other for either their race, their gender, what people choose to be, and when people hate each other because they're different nationality, different color, different religion, I would change that. Mm-hmm. And uh, what would I do is bring more love people so we love each other more. The reason for that is because the word hate has, uh, has contributed to people uh, taking their own life, 
Because when somebody hates you for what you hear, so many people commit suicide. They, so we talk about mental issues. There's so many people who are isolated because of hate yeah. that they can't speak about this, that they're going through mental struggle and emotional struggle. And true hate, when I saw in the world that when people become hateful, they lost empathy. And yeah. that means they don't care what kind of punishment they give to other people, innocent people. So I think hate is one of hating other people for who they hate. If I was to change anything, that's one thing I would change, that we love more, we care more, and then don't hate anybody. If people, whatever gender, you know, today we have everything going on in the world, whatever people choose to be, you know, as long as they're not inflicting pain and suffering on the lives of other people, yeah. just let us just move on. And I always said uh, as a joke, you know, you know, different colors make a great, you know, scenery, a yeah. great, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So different religion make us uh, better people because everybody come from a different background, different culture, different beliefs. And I don't think anyone's beliefs or color or race, nationality should create a problem for us. So for me, uh, hate is something I would change. Love is something I would replace it with. Incredible. You know? Amazing. I, I, yeah. I think you bob on that. I think that's keeping an open mind as well, isn't it? I think a lot of people yeah. tend to be quite close-minded. Yeah. Um, yeah. When something different comes along, they don't like it. Yeah. And they attack that with negativity. Yeah. Um, so keeping an open mind is very important. Yeah. So I love Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Great response. So completely off topic now, this is what I've asked everyone on here so far. So food. <laughs> 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 I, I loved because yeah. food is a big passion of my life. So um, obviously, I mean, coming from where you've been from to the point where, you know, you probably question where each meal was coming from. I mean, yeah. Let's put this be, be layman ter- terms there. Yeah. To now to where you're in a completely different zone. You know? Yeah. Um, are you a foodie? Are you, are you a big lover of food? You know. I'm very, very forcey. In fact, only till recently, I started, people start choking food to me because, uh, for example, Elijah, I travel with. I can remember the mom uh, when we met. What I eat, I eat rice. I used to eat rice and fish, rice and chicken only for breakfast, mm-hmm. lunch, and dinner. Wow, okay. And people used to say, Why would you do that? I said, But look at me, you know. T- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take care of yourself. Yeah, it, yeah. it works, you know. <laughs> yeah. And in Sierra sure. Leone, and the, the reason why I eat a lot of rice or Sierra Leoneans eat rice is because when uh, I come from a very extreme poor family, so we used to have one meal a day. So uh, rice lasts for more than six hours in your system. It's stuff you have a lot of, lot of carbohydrates. So you just drink water, rice and beans, you just keep you going. So you have carbohydrates and protein. And so we got used to that. So we eat that in the morning when we have some. Mm-hmm. So I will go to school, not bother about being hungry. And I have enough energy to run, come back, play tennis. If you're lucky to have another meal in the evening, yeah. then here you go. So rice become my thing. And so ever since... Growing up, rice is my thing because uh, 90% of the, the national food in Sierra Leone, staple food is rice. So for me, rice, anywhere I am, I can't go more than two days without rice. Otherwise, yeah. you don't want to see me get angry. I'm hungry and hungry at the same time. No, but rice for me is good. Rice and fish is my favorite food. Rice and chicken also is my favorite food. But like I said to you before offline that... I tend to cut down sometimes the meat and all this kind of stuff and just eat rice and vegetable sauce, peanut butter sauce, whatever I can cook. So for me, rice, yeah, number yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Um, I want to dive a little more into your like passions and interests now, obviously, yeah. uh, other <coughs> than um, 
tennis. We know you've done a bit of martial arts in your past. Yeah. We've spoken briefly. You've got a bit of an interest in bodybuilding and things like that. You're very in yeah. shape individual, if you want to yeah. expand a little further on that. Yes. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, uh, martial arts, uh, I had few opportunity to see uh, some movie of Bruce Lee and a guy, a guy called Bolo Young. Most kids, they won't remember who this guy was. He's in... Um, Enter the Dragon with uh, Bruce Lee was the biggest oh, yeah. Yeah. bodybuilding martial artist I've ever seen. I think some people you never used to think that this guy was a really good martial artist. So Bolo Young uh, was somebody I saw. And then also I love martial arts from being a kid when I had the first opportunity to start watching this kind of uh, movie. So there was a guy called Med Van Damme. So Van Damme obviously is Jean-Claude Van Damme. So he, people used to take his name because when he watched Universal Soldier, he watched Blood Sports, all this kind of movie. Mm. And people loved Van Damme because he was also a natural martial artist yeah. who worked really hard. So Med Van Damme was a drill sergeant in the Sierra Leone Army. All right. So he lived in our area. So he used to come every evening after work. He decided... He's going to come and introduce himself to us. And then he starts teaching us karate, Shotokan karate. So this guy will come from work uh, in his military full uniform and then put his AK-47 on the side. And here he is. He's a proper martial art karate instructor and he used to fight for, the, fight for the Sierra Leone national team as well in karate. So he will come and teach us. But what I noticed was he was paying more attention to me than any of the other kids. Right. And he used to even threaten me and say, look, uh, Jalo. If I ever see you do this, you do that, you even smoke weed or take anything, I'll deal with you seriously. And I used to be so afraid of him. Really? <laughs> oh, yes. And, and sometimes when we miss, uh, let's say you miss a punch, you practice in kata, and then you miss the kata, and, um, and he will let you do like 100 push-ups. Yeah. And then you reach a point where like 100 push-ups, come on, my grandma could do the 200, yeah, 300. And then you start doing so many push-ups and we become stronger and stronger because Sierra Leone was a rough place. But I find out in my life that this guy was like a guiding angel as well who come because he was so focused on me. And he mm. said, I like you because you're serious, you want to learn, you do things. So I grew up doing karate. And then when I moved to Ghana, my coach, Coach Noah, yeah. is a national taekwondo fighter and an instructor. No way. So I switched from uh, karate yeah. and I started doing taekwondo, which I did for years and years and got my black belt. And then also I started doing kung fu and I did all kind of things. And then when I moved to England, I actually did some jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Wow. And then which, uh, yeah, so I... I'm like a believer of Bruce Lee that uh, if you want to know more about martial arts, you learn other martial arts. So you learn about people's culture and different style and then you can help to add to your own style. So did a lot of uh, nunchucks, nunchaku, as they say, as we say in Sierra Leone. And then both staff, we used to practice a lot of that and street fights, all kinds of hand combat. Like you saw, I was showing you with the photograph that we practice four hours a day yeah. and yeah. stuff like that. So I love martial arts. In fact, if I, if you wasn't just doing tennis, I would have just probably go to the Olympic and do Taekwondo and stuff like wow. that. Yeah. Okay. And bodybuilding, you mentioned as well. After I finished tennis, uh, competing in tennis, I have nothing else to do because prior to that, I never went to gym. Prior to me in 2007, yeah. I never ever go to gym. All I was doing is a thousand push up in the morning, 600 to a thousand sit up, 
and then I practiced my martial art. That was my fitness. And then I would do skipping for like 20 minutes wow. and this kind of thing. And then I would stretch for like 15, 20, sometimes half an hour. I would stretch just to keep my flexibility. Not now. All these flexibility <laughs> things are gone. I got too much muscle now, I think, sometimes. Yeah. But then I love bodybuilding. I follow all the bodybuilders. I could name you 50 great bodybuilders off my head. Even the female bodybuilder. I followed the Olympia. In fact, 2018, I was in Las Vegas to watch the you know uh the mr olympia oh, where, I, yes i, I was there know. i was wow. there in fact i was there when when um uh, phil hit lost to uh to late sean roden because yeah. he passed away yeah, and things like that we have some great bodybuilders who have passed away recently including cedric mcmillan mm -hmm. who's one of my favorites and then he just died from heart attack and stuff so i follow bodybuilding but you know i've always keep it natural you know i weigh uh 17 and a half stone we sound like a lot of weight <laughs> for my, but I'm yeah, six yeah. foot two. So, um, and you know, I train naturally. I, like I said, I don't even take protein, none of this kind of stuff. And not because I don't like them. I don't think they work because I just eat rice and natural food and I got great genetic. But as you can mm -hmm. see, I work a lot. Uh, I love to work hard. Like this morning, six o'clock, I went there and I did my leg so hard and then went and played two and a half hour tennis. Christ. To the point where I'm now walking out of my car, I'm limping a bit, but I love it. <laughs> you're, a bit, you're a bit tender. <laughs> yeah. So I love bodybuilding. And I can say to everybody who's out there, if you're listening to this, uh, if you go to the gym, it's a great way to kill stress. It's a great way to get out of your comfort, get out of your problems and things. Plus, also, you're doing yourself a whole lot of good, keeping your body in shape. I mean, I'm looking at you with your shape and your arms and things like that. And I watch you doing leg training in the gym and I always say to you, we still haven't done that leg session yet. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get that booked in. We'll, we'll get that booked in. We'll get that so booked I in. love it and I've made some of the best friends in the gym. So, you know, so the gym is like my second home. That's good. It's, it's, um, it's a place of, with like-minded individuals, isn't it? And I think with your work ethic and things, you know, that's why you've got, you know, the body yeah. you've built, your success in life, your coaching. Yeah. Oh, because of your work ethic that you've yeah. got because um, of the things you've been through you know makes you different to everyone else yeah, um, yeah. and it's truly incredible yeah super um, so we'll, we'll begin to wrap up a bit there yeah um, so if is there anything I always like to, to, to spin the coin a little bit here so is there anything today that I didn't ask you that you wish I had have asked you uh, well, there's a lot of stuff, you know, like I said, my book is there. People can read that and yeah. get the other bits. But I think we cover a lot of the areas, uh, things, you know, but um, all I can say is for me, if I would advise people is that let's love more, care more and um, let's try and understand each other more because this world is our home. Uh, this world doesn't belong to anyone else. It belongs to all of us. And it doesn't matter whether you're from Africa, from Asia, from Europe, from America. No one is superior to others. No, and we're just human beings. If an asteroid is coming to hit this earth today, they're not going to say, oh, this is going to fall on black people or Muslim people or whatever people or white people. It's going to fall on humanity. And we all need together. It's, it sometimes surprised me that only when we're in trouble that we come together as human beings. But when things are normal, certain people make life difficult for others. You know, so let's love and care more. That that will be the thing I would love to talk more about. That um, I got family now, which people laugh at me. I got family here in England. I got the best, my best friends are in England. 
And, you know, and also just to mention to people that I become a British citizen, you know, many, many years ago. And I travel on a British passport and I got my Sierra Leonean passport still. But I'm so thankful because uh, Great Britain has given me a lot of opportunity. You know, everywhere I go, people see a British passport. They're so respectful. Yeah. And to see that you come from England. The narration that people uh, think that uh, people really hate British people, I don't know where they get this thing from. <laughs> because everywhere I've been to Middle East, you know, America, Asia, you talk. And first of all, when I, I never tell people I come from Southport, not because I don't want to talk about Southport. Because when you're in America or the place you see you come from Southport, they go, where is that? Where's that? Yeah. So I always clear. tell them I'm from Liverpool. They go, oh, the Beatles. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know. It. And, and, and even in Eastern Europe, when, yeah. when I was in places like Bulgaria and Serbia and other places, and you mentioned Liverpool, they mentioned the Beatles. The Russian people, they love British music. They love, you know, like what's happening in Ukraine today. It's not just the Ukrainians suffering, the Russians are suffering. Yeah. Ukrainians yeah. are suffering. We shouldn't go through this, you know, and I think diplomatically we have uh, smart people enough to come together and make peace and... And, you know, make this world a better place because only innocent people that suffered. So let's love more KMO and respect each other's culture and differences. And let's just move on. Uh, super. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. So, so again, so we, I do truly appreciate you taking time out and being here today yeah. um, and sharing your incredible story with us. I don't like to call it a story. It's a life experience, yeah. isn't it, as what I've yeah. said before. Because yeah. um, the story implies that it wasn't real. And yeah. By God, it was real. Yeah. <laughs> You've been through a hell of a lot. Yeah. And it's grounding and it's amazing for them, my listeners to be able to hear this. And um, so, as we know, uh, Sam's book is on, you can get it on Amazon, etc. Yeah. Um, so, I'll be posting links and all the social media stuff on my pages so you, yeah. can, you can follow Sam um, and see what he's up to. He did a lot of motivational talks. I think I've, I've been to, lucky to be to one myself. Um, truly incredible experience, a truly incredible individual. So, um, so yeah, I think that's pretty much everything. So just thank, thank you again once, Sam. Thank you so much, Alan. I've enjoyed it and I hope the listeners will enjoy it. Thank yeah. you so much. And we'll, uh, we'll have you on a, on a, we'll have another, uh, another one coming soon. Go and yeah. jumping into his, his next book, um, yeah. jumping a little bit more into mental health. Yeah. And yeah, that's a wrap. Thank I'll you. I'll see you guys soon.